Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today, we're talking with Stuart Kahn, who's a professor in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UNSW. He's a Coogee local and water contamination expert. On today's episode, we learn about the history of stormwater in the eastern suburbs, water contamination as a result of the recent bushfires, and the future of water recycling and supply in New South Wales. You're listening to Coogee Voice. The systems that we have are working fine at the moment and they will continue to be satisfactory until our population grows to a point that they're no longer satisfactory and then we'll be forced to make decisions one way or another. The issue that we have is that currently we discharge it onto the beach. There are two major outfalls, as you would know, the biggest one being at the northern end of Coogee Beach, which discharges down across the sand and forms a little creekway at times and children play in it. The families tend to assume that it's nice, clean water. Sometimes it does look pretty clean, but I've been there at times when there's clear evidence of sewage contamination in that water as well. In other cases, it's not going to good use. It's going off somewhere and effectively evaporating and we're losing that water when there really are opportunities to be taking that water, treating it to a suitable quality. So we could use it to offset drinking water use, use it for irrigation where we would otherwise use drinking water for irrigation or actually treat it to a level that is safe and reliable to put back into our drinking water supplies as we've discussed happens in other parts of the world. Stuart, welcome to Coogee Voice. Now, I know that you were born in Coffs Harbour. How did you come living in the eastern suburbs? I came to Sydney to go to university, originally Sydney University, and I lived over at Newtown. But I came over to the eastern suburbs when I started going to University of New South Wales as a postgraduate student to, to do a PhD. So that's when I got to know places like Coogee and Maroubra and uh, fell in love with the whole area. I fell in love with Randwick itself and uh, basically never left. Now, your work is broadly speaking in the area of water contamination. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this area of work? Sure. So... I did come into this area out of concern for environmental issues and around coasts and beaches. I grew up in Coffs Harbour and just as I was finishing school in Coffs Harbour, there was there were plans around building a new ocean outfall at uh, Emerald Beach, which is in fact where I grew up as, as well, right at Emerald Beach. There was lots of protests in the community about building an ocean outfall at that particular location. People were concerned about water quality in a pretty pristine marine environment. And there were discussions about, well, we should probably be doing something better with that water. We should be treating that water and reusing it rather than just dumping it into the ocean. And, and to some degree, that's largely what happened. There was a water recycling scheme that was built around it. It now supports a very lucrative blueberry industry around Wulgulga. And, and that was a real success story. And that really inspired me. It was something that I looked to and said, wow, you know, there are opportunities to do things with, with water management and with wastewater that have massive community benefits. That is a great segue into the first part of our conversation around this. The Coogee stormwater and ocean outfall is a quite a big issue in the eastern suburbs. 
there's actually been a long history of this across the entire eastern suburbs. Are you able to give us a little bit of a history lesson on where we've actually come from and where we are today in terms of water management? Sure. So the water management starts when the, the, the colony of New South Wales starts <laughs> uh, and we started taking our drinking water um, out of the tank stream, the little stream that ran through the middle of Sydney down into Circular Quay. And very soon that became polluted. And as it became polluted, Sydney Harbour was becoming polluted. There was sewage going into it. It was no longer a suitable drinking water supply. We had to come over this way for our drinking water. The Lachlan Swamps in in Centennial Park became the next important drinking water supply. But then eventually we started moving the wastewater in this direction as well. And so to get the sewage, the raw sewage out of Sydney Harbour in the middle of the city, we started to build the first wastewater systems, which transported the water towards Bondi. And we started disposing of of Sydney's wastewater off Bondi. And in fact, there was also wastewater disposal off Coogee as well. We were discharging raw sewage off Dolphin Point and at the uh, northern end of Coogee Beach, I think up until about the 1930s. When that became unacceptable to do, we started moving it down to Malabar and it was being discharged um, off the cliff face at Malabar. So we had three big cliff face wastewater disposal points by about the 70s and 80s, which were Malabar, North Head and Bondi. And all of those areas, the, the receiving waters, the beaches around them were all impacted Bondi in particular was notorious for having very poor water quality. The risk of waterborne disease, things like ear infections, was very high and it was well recognised. That was a significant public health concern. It was also not great for tourism, having really terrible water quality at some of our beaches as as the raw wastewater was discharged off the cliff face. So by the 1990s, Bob Carr's government constructed what we now have, which are the deep water ocean outfalls. So we take water, nearly all of Sydney's wastewater from as far west as Liverpool comes to to Malabar. We take that water, it's treated by primary treatment processes only, which is really just gravity settling. We let some of the big solids settle down to the bottom and they're removed as sludge, but then the rest of the wastewater is not further treated before it's discharged out through the ocean outfalls which take the water about six kilometres out to sea, about 60 metres below sea level, and move it away from the beaches. So we're still discharging really poor water quality out into the ocean, but we're moving it away from the beaches. And there is strong evidence to show that that has improved the public health risks. It has taken the pollution off the beaches. So that's a big tick. That's been a big positive outcome. But again, we still need to think about what impacts we might be having over the longer term on the marine environment and whether we're really making good use of water that is potentially valuable and we could be reclaiming and using in other ways. So there's a couple of things that you've spoken on that I want to touch on. So firstly, what you're talking about is technology from about 40 years ago. Has the world advanced since then in terms of not only water treatment, but also in terms of, you know, is it really what you've just said viable to be sending water out to sea, particularly when drought is a major issue in our country? Yes. So good questions. And and yes, things have advanced. The, the engineering, the technology has advanced. When those deep water ocean outfalls were constructed, we did have biological sewage treatment. So the the technology for biological sewage treatment, which is the the next step that you would take in improving the water quality, did exist. And there was a lot of debate at the time in the late 80s and early 90s about 
whether we should be building biological wastewater treatment plants there to improve the water quality or whether we should be investing in the out-of-sight, out-of-mind solution of the deep water ocean outfalls. And at that time, biological treatment was a real challenge. And this comes back to, I think, some of the things we might talk about with stormwater at Coogee, because to build a biological sewage treatment plant, the technology is available, but the footprint that's required, the amount of land, the amount of space that it would take up to build it, is very large and it's not the sort of thing you want to give over some of the most expensive real estate in Australia, in in North Bondi, um, to build a big sewage treatment plant. So from that perspective, it made sense, I suppose, to say, well, we'll keep the footprint as small as possible and we now have this big wastewater treatment plant which has a small footprint but it goes underground, both Malabar and Bondi and North Head all, all go down underground. So we have a small footprint and and most of the investment, the money that we've spent on it, is on delivering the water out into the ocean, six kilometres out to sea through an undersea undersea pipeline, three undersea pipelines. Now technology has changed, in fact, and there are new technologies, things like membrane bioreactors, which can do that upgraded treatment, the biological treatment, with a much smaller footprint. And it is conceivable that we could start doing that in the current footprint underground at Bondi and Malabar. And that's something that we really should be looking at going into the future is improving that water quality here or either further up in the sewage catchment rather than letting raw or primary treated effluent being discharged into the ocean. Does it have to be treated here or can it be treated further up the stream? Absolutely. So as I said, a lot of the water, if you look at Malabar, Malabar has the the, the biggest catchment through what we call the uh, Southern Ocean Outfall Wastewater sewer and that particular sewer takes water effectively from Liverpool, from Fairfield, a long way west in Sydney. It's entirely possible that we could be pulling water out somewhere along the way and treating it and reusing it for various types of applications rather than letting it make its way all the way down to Malabar and similarly from the city to Bondi or from the northern suburbs to to North Head. There are good reasons for wanting to do that. Our sewers are old, those systems are ageing now and they're starting to reach capacity. So either we're going to have to invest a lot of money on expanding the capacity of some of these massive sewers under Sydney, which would be like building something like the M5 tunnel again to transport water through a super sewer from all the development we're expecting to see in Western Sydney onto the coast, or we think about using that same money to pull the water out somewhere further west, treat it and reuse it. And in your opinion, why do you think there has been either no hunger or no action from government in this area? Well, I think we took a big step in in the early 90s with building those deep water ocean outfalls. That was a massive investment. So I think once you make an investment like that, you're not going. You're stuck with it to a degree for for some period of time. You're not going to go and build infrastructure that's in direct competition with the way that you've set set things up. So for the time being, that's the way we do things. All of the water drains east, and it gets discharged out of those deep water ocean outfalls. But looking to the future, there are obstacles for continuing with the the sunken infrastructure that we have, as we just spoke about. As those sewers start to reach capacity, we come to the next fork in the road where, again, we have to make a decision. Are we going to spend billions of dollars trying to transport more sewage to the East Coast or will we spend those billions of dollars in a different way? So I don't know that it's not a question of simply no appetite. I think that the systems that we have are working fine at the moment and they will continue to be satisfactory. 
until our population grows to a point that they're no longer satisfactory and then we'll be forced to make decisions one way or another. Now, just coming back a little bit, the Coogee stormwater problem is an issue that gets raised quite often with constituents in my electoral office. Are you able to give us a little bit of an explanation as to what is the issue that is unique to Coogee and how do you think we can overcome it? Yeah. So with Coogee, the way the the geography of Coogee is, it's a basin and it's a very steep basin around Coogee coming down from Avoca Street down onto the beach. And so when it rains heavily, we generate a lot of stormwater in that area and it moves very quickly down onto the beach. In the past, Coogee has had trouble with flooding. So down around Coogee Oval has flooded during severe rainfall events. So it's very important that this stormwater, as it rushes towards Coogee, has somewhere to go. Otherwise, it will cause floods. The issue that we have is that currently we discharge it onto the beach. There are two major outfalls, as you would know, the biggest one being at the northern end of Coogee Beach, which discharges down across the sand, forms a little creekway at times, and children play in it, and families tend to assume (laughs) that it's nice, clean water. Sometimes it does look pretty clean, but I've been there at times when there's clear evidence of sewage contamination in that water as well. So there's a public health risk associated with that. I think it was 2016 when Beachwatch, New South Wales government agency that, that monitors water quality at our beaches and gives them a, a rating based on the last 12 months worth of, of data. I think it was 2016 when Coogee out of the blue went from a good water quality rating to a poor water quality rating. And that garnered a lot of attention. People were wondering why this happened. And there were also a couple of big events after some rainfall events where the the water at Coogee was visibly black and brown and full of leaves and looking pretty pretty horrible. So people started to realise we do have a problem. It's to do with the fact that we generate large volumes of stormwater in a very short period of time in a good storm. It's to do with the fact that Coogee is a relatively shallow bay. It's to do with the fact that it's not a very turbulent marine environment there. The surf's not big, so the water doesn't mix very well, and it gets trapped within that that bay area. So the water quality can deteriorate quickly, and, and it can stay poor for a couple of days compared to other places, which will flush out and improve much more quickly. What can we do about it? The sources of the contamination there, there are a few things. One is all of the rubbish that gets washed off the streets when that rain comes. So all of the things that are on the road, in the gutters, dog poo, litter, a lot of the litter we are able to collect. So there are gross pollutant traps that Randwick Council has installed uh, in those stormwater systems that need to be cleaned out frequently. They capture a lot of the bottles and the bags and other sort of gross pollutants like that. But the bacterial pollutants from dog poo or from anything else, rubbish that might be lying around in the streets, all of that bacteria, of course, stays in the water and is washed out into the bay. And that's why we get the poor water quality readings. The other thing that happens is that when we have really big wet weather events, a lot of our sewage systems overflow and they overflow into our stormwater system. So we actually get raw municipal sewage, human sewage, going into our stormwater under a big wet weather event and that ends up on our beaches and that's an obvious real public health risk when that happens. So that's the thing that really needs to be addressed and really needs to be fixed, I think, is making sure that we we no longer have this case of sewage running across our beaches. 
Now, one of the things you've spoken about is around the gross pollutant traps as well as, you know, where litter starts, where it fundamentally starts in our streets. Randwick Council have run a campaign, which is really like where litter starts. Have you adopted a drain? I have adopted a drain. I've done better than that. (laughs) I've got twin drains. I've got splishy and splashy. And oh, where no. are Splishy and Splashy located? They are on Prince Lane down near King Street, <laughs> near, the, near the bus depot there. Keep a pretty good eye on Splishy and Splashy because we have a, my nine-year-old and I have a pretty good awareness of where they drain to, which is one of the ponds in Centennial Park. Yeah. And you can it's one of those ponds that has a lot of stormwater flowing into it. And you can watch the water quality deteriorate and improve under different weather conditions. And so it's a nice example for us to keep an eye on. And we do try and keep rubbish away from that drain as much as possible. And in fact, my nine-year-old has adopted a drain as well at his school, which is Randwick Public School. And so uh, he's very proudly able to um, show his friends at lunchtime that that's my drain right there. I don't know if they believe him or not, (laughs) but he has a rightful claim to ownership and responsibility for managing rubbish that might be washed down that drain. We have adopted Derek and Delilah on our Frenchman's Road, which my office takes good care of as well. So it's good to see uh, that you are adopting the drain. This has been a great campaign being run by Randwick Council. Now, it seems though like a bit preposterous to me that water is just being pushed out to sea. Again, where there are still huge parts of New South Wales that are in drought. And I think sometimes it can be a bit difficult for people in the eastern suburbs to really conceptualise how bad the drought is when we actually get, I think, 75% more rainfall than the rest of New South Wales because we're coastal. Um, I guess, is there a way of being able to solve the Coogee stormwater problem in a way that actually has a broader environmental impact? So I think what you're getting at is uh, can, can we address the pollution, the wastewater problem at the same time as being able to make better use of, of that water? And I think we can, but stormwater really is challenging. And that's what Randwick Council has been focusing on this question for a long time. I've been on the committee, you've been on the committee, looking at trying to help identify a workable solution to improving this this problem at Coogee. But stormwater is challenging and it's because of the way that it comes. You know, it comes rushing down towards the beach in a very short period of time in in just a few days, really. If you look at all the volume, the large volumes of water that you effectively could accumulate in stormwater at Coogee, it comes over probably 10, 15 days of the year. And so it's all at once. And of course, if you're thinking about using that water for things like irrigation, it comes when you least need it. It comes when it's pouring rain and nobody wants to irrigate. You can't irrigate flooded, soaking wet playing fields. So to be able to do anything useful with it, you need storage. You always need storage. Um, You need storage if you want to treat it because treatment processes aren't usually, apart from a gross pollutant trap, they're usually not things that can sit there dry for weeks and weeks and weeks and then suddenly treat a massive volume of water in the few days that that the storm comes. So treatment processes tend to operate continuously at at a constant pace. So you would need large storage if you want to treat it and you certainly need large storage if you want to reuse it, especially if you want to reuse it when it's not raining. So that's, that's really a challenge because the storage opportunities are limited. We can build water tanks. Potentially, you could build a very large story under Coogee Oval or under the, the main area down at Goldstein Reserve there. Potentially, you could have storage under that. 
but that's a massive, that's a big investment. And it's something that if you were going to do, you, you'd want to make sure that you had very good uses for. We already do do it. I think people don't realize there is stormwater treatment happening down at Coogee. There is storage. And most of those reserves, Goldstein Reserve, Grant Reserve, most of those areas are already irrigated by stored stormwater down there. So that's a really positive thing in terms of water savings. That means that all of that irrigation is not subject to water restrictions. So when we go into water restrictions and other parts of Sydney are drying out, could you can keep the grass green down there, which is a positive environmental and social outcome. But still, you hardly touch the surface in terms of how much water is really available when you get a big rainfall event. And it's very difficult to do anything with it. it doesn't involve discharging it out into the ocean. Now, moving a little bit away from Coogee now, during the bushfires, water contamination was something that you had been quite vocal about on Twitter. Are you able to walk us through a bit of the issues around water contamination that arose specifically during the bushfire period? So there were lots of issues that we were facing and that was part of the challenge, that the issues were diverse and and complicated and very sudden with all inland local government areas all trying to deal with the same issues at once. So the first thing that happened in a number of places was that the bushfires directly threatened water supplies. They threatened water treatment plants. We had a number of water treatment plants, particularly down on the south coast of New South Wales, that had lost power. So they lost the ability to treat water. They lost the ability to chlorinate water. Therefore, there was raw water from the river, untreated water, going through into the drinking water supply system. And of course, all of those places ended up on a boil water alert straight away because the quality of that drinking water couldn't be guaranteed without the proper treatment. There were other places that had to do that on purpose. They bypassed their water treatment plants because the demand for water to put out the bushfires, to fight the fires, and everybody running sprinklers on their houses to try and protect their houses meant that the water treatment plant couldn't keep up with the demand. So the water treatment plants were being bypassed. And again, all of those places ended up on uh, water restrictions while that happened. Then there were other areas where the catchments were burnt, including Sydney's catchment, massive amount of damage in the Warragamba catchment around Sydney, the Shawhaven catchment as well that supplies Nowra, also supplies Sydney through the Shawhaven scheme. But then further down around Cabargo and Bermagui, the, the water catchments were massively damaged and burnt. So when that happens, you end up with a lot of ash on the ground from the burnt forests. The ash contains things that we need to treat from water, so sediment, turbidity for a start, but also a lot of nutrients, things like phosphorus in particular. And when the rain comes along, which it did come along pretty quickly afterwards, all of that phosphorus, all of the ash and phosphorus gets washed into the waterways and eventually into Warragamba Dam and the other storages. And when you add phosphorus to, to waterways, you elevate our risk of an algal bloom. So it's quite likely now, it's much more likely than it was, that over the next 12 months or so, perhaps the next summer, we might end up with problems of dealing with big blooms of algae on, on Warragamba and other dams that are difficult to, to treat and present water quality impacts. They can change the taste of water. They can give water the ba- a bad smell, which is difficult to treat. In some cases, they can even produce toxic chemicals that we would need to be very careful about making sure didn't end up in the, in the public water supplies. There were places, so down at Bermagui, Cabago, that they don't have choices in terms of where they get their water supply from. It's a single water supply coming from a single dam through a single water treatment plant. 
there was so much ash being washed into that particular dam that the water treatment process wasn't able to, to treat the water. It's effectively like treating mud and you're trying to filter mud and there was no way that the water treatment plant could treat the water to a suitable quality to make it safe for drinking. So that community was on tight water restrictions following the bushfires. They were trucking water in from other parts of Yorubadala Council. There, there was major shortages of, of water as a consequence. And one of the big lessons that I think we learned from that was how well Sydney was able to get through what could have been a disaster under other circumstances. We actually took Warragamba Dam offline for a week. So Warragamba Dam is 80% of Sydney's drinking water supply. Big plume of ash coming down, looking like it's going to inundate the water treatment plant. So Water New South Wales was able to isolate that supply, take it offline for a period of time and draw water from our other sources, from the southern dams via the upper canal and out of Prospect Reservoir itself. To me, that was a really important lesson about flexibility, about having more than one source of supply so that you can take even a major source of supply offline for a short period of time to enable the worst quality conditions to, to pass you by. And that's something I think that we need to be looking at for improving resilience in other supplies that we didn't have in, in some parts of New South Wales. You've spoken about flexibility and mix of supply. I was in the Middle East earlier this year, and one of the things that I really took away from that trip was the mix of water supply that they have there. This huge investment in desalination, water recycling, as well as really big campaigns around water reduction. This seems to me a real missing part about the water narrative in New South Wales. I guess, firstly, talking about water recycling, because there seems to be a bit of a stigma around that area. I guess, what are the barriers in New South Wales for us to be at, that we need to overcome so that we can recycle more water? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's true that we, we're currently not doing a good job of recycling water anywhere in New South Wales, particularly in Sydney. We talked about a million, uh, a thousand megalitres per day being discharged straight out into the Pacific Ocean. So we have water that we could recycle that we don't recycle. The, the barriers, I think, are, well, I mean, first, we should make the point that, that it can be done because there are, apart from places that you just described in the Middle East, there's plenty of examples in the US Perth now has a big water recycling scheme. Brisbane has a big water recycling scheme. They're not currently using it because exactly like our seawater desalination plant, it has a trigger point for when it gets turned on in response to the dams getting low. And their dams haven't quite reached that trigger point at the moment. I think they're sitting at about 66% of capacity in Brisbane. The trigger point is 60%. So they have a big water recycling scheme that can be switched on and start operating the same way as our desal plant does when it's needed. So those opportunities are real and, and other cities can build big water recycling schemes. I think really interesting thing in New South Wales is that there really hasn't been the political appetite to go down that path, to have that discussion with the community over the last 20 years. And it's a topic I've been pretty closely engaged in and have paid very close attention to what premiers and water ministers have had to say about it over the last 20 years. And there's really been no appetite at all to discuss it. It's not something we do in New South Wales. It's not government policy and it's actively, I don't know that it's written down anywhere, but every time it comes up, it's very clearly opposed to government policy. There have been premiers, Barry O'Farrell, for example, uh, made a big statement in the Daily Telegraph 
about how it was he was opposed to it as government policy and organizations like Sydney Water shouldn't even be looking at it as a t- at the time because it's in conflict with government policy. So in, in those ways, it was pretty clearly articulated on both sides of politics. Interesting time at the moment, I think, is that both sides of politics seem to be willing to listen to proposals around water recycling. And I've had discussions with, with Labor Party members in the New South Wales government, and I've had discussions with National Party members in the New South Wales government, including the Water Minister, and they're pretty open. There are media statements now from numerous people on both sides saying that they think that this is something we should be looking at, and this is an opportunity for the future, and we should be open-minded towards this. And to me, that's a massive change. That's, that's been the biggest brick wall. And that brick wall is no longer there. So I think uh, now is the time to be really exploring those opportunities and, and moving ahead with them. And, and I think we will. I think that, that that's really what we needed. We needed governments not necessarily to endorse the idea of water recycling, but simply to step away from saying no. And, and, and that's just happened in the last couple of years. Water supply, though, is a big issue. And I guess one of the things that is often spoken about around, not just in the eastern suburbs, but around Sydney is around overdevelopment and mm-hmm. urban overdevelopment. You know, one of the solutions for this is decentralisation of New South Wales and Sydney. But particularly if we look to decentralise New South Wales west of Sydney, mm-hmm. this presents a huge challenge when it comes to water. And you need water in order to build a town. It is the source of all life. I guess, is this something that can be overcome? Yeah, so it's a good question (laughs) following what we've just been through with the drought where we've seen lots of local towns and cities around New South Wales and the rest of Australia really struggling to maintain reliable drinking water supplies in the face of an extreme drought. So water absolutely is a limiting factor to growth. But I think that we do have lots of opportunities that we can tap into that uh, are not fully exploited at this point. And the first one is just getting the balance right with the water that's already available. And so there are discussions around how much water we reserve for human uses as um, for towns and cities. A lot of the big reservoirs, the big water storages that we have around New South Wales are multi-purpose. They supply towns and cities and they also supply essential agriculture, irrigation uses as well. But we need to be very careful about getting that balance right. There are times when irrigation can stop, but but water for towns and cities really can't stop. So that's really got to be the, the first priority. And I think that we've got a little way to go in getting that right. But I think cities also have lots of opportunities to expand their water supplies and to make better use of the water that they already have access to. I think there are opportunities, particularly around emergency water supplies, short-term water supplies for groundwater use that are, that are unexplored. We could be accessing and treating more groundwater. We need to make sure we do that in a sustainable way. We don't want to pump our groundwater systems dry. But if we understand the recharge and recovery rates, then we can work those so that we have a sustainable yield from from groundwater systems. There's a long way that we can go with improving water efficiency. And that comes down to having water efficient white goods and shower heads and toilets. But just looking at the way that, that design our towns and cities such that we're not needing to use more water than, than, than we might actually do. 
looking at the, the gardens that we build, the, the, the native plants that we might encourage people to grow in gardens compared to um, potentially some of the more uh, water-demanding gardens that, that uh, we might have constructed. And then, yes, absolutely, we should be looking at what's coming out of our wastewater treatment plants and where is that water from our wastewater treatment plants going. And in some cases, it goes to good use, essential use. In some cases, you have towns and cities that are discharging from their sewage treatment plants into local waterways, which become the supplies, the drinking water supplies of other cities downstream. We need to be careful with managing the water quality in those cases, but the supply of that water is actually an essential component of supply for, for downstream towns and cities. In other cases, it's not going to good use. It's going off somewhere and effectively evaporating and we're losing that water when there really are opportunities to be taking that water, treating it to a suitable quality so we could use it to offset drinking water use, use it for irrigation where we would otherwise use drinking water for irrigation or actually treat it to a level that is safe and reliable to put back into our drinking water supplies, as we've discussed, happens in other parts of the world, could certainly happen in many places in Australia, providing a massive opportunity really to increase how much benefit we get out of current drinking water supplies. Stuart, it seems to me a lot of what you're talking about, it actually starts much further up the stream, even with things like our own homes. So that is our DCPs, our LEPs and our building standards. So how we build our homes, the conditions around it, whether we're talking about setbacks, the need for a certain amount of green space, whether or not water tanks have to be included. Like, What are your thoughts on this? Ultimately, it's hard to get away from discharging some of that into the ocean. That The real way to address that problem is that we should have addressed it right from the start, which is in the way that we design our, our suburbs and we try and prevent suburbs that generate these massive sudden volumes of water. And the reason that we have those massive sudden volumes of water is because of all the impervious surfaces. We have lots of concrete uh, and, and our rooftops. The rain lands on our roofs and on our concrete before Coogee was built as a suburb, it would have all infiltrated down into the ground. It's a very sandy catchment around Coogee. We've gone down into the sand and then moved its way very, very slowly back towards the ocean underground as groundwater through that, that sand. And we really should be thinking about changing the design of how we build in Coogee to try to minimise the amount of impervious surfaces in favour of either pervious surfaces, so so ground that, that is open and water can infiltrate down through, or we can engineer solutions like that as well. Whereas if we put in things like green roofs and rain gardens, trenches that the water can be directed to rather than into our concrete line stormwater system, then you move the water away from, from Coogee Beach and you slow it down. And there are plenty of opportunities and there's a, there's a major international trend. We call it, in Australia, we call it water-sensitive urban design. And there are lots of opportunities around water-sensitive urban design to stop the problem at its source rather than at the end of, of pipe, which is currently the focus. Now, Stuart, if there were three things an individual could, sorry, Stuart, what are three things an individual can do today to reduce water contamination across the eastern suburbs? One of the first things I would be doing is having a look at properties that you're responsible for, your home, your building, and look for opportunities to reduce the sudden discharge of stormwater into the concrete line stormwater system. So maintaining 
rainwater tanks, gardens, etc., is 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 number one. Secondly, I think that people should be getting on board when when you have councils like Randwick Council coming up with campaigns to adopt a drain, to, to look out for opportunities to reduce pollution that is going into our stormwater systems, keeping the gutters clean, keeping our streets clean, don't litter. Uh, all of these things provide water quality improvements because all of that litter and all of that bacteria will end up at Coogee Beach. The third thing, <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's hard to put the responsibility (laughs) for for stormwater pollution entirely on individuals it's a it's a collective solution that's that's needed so Stuart before we go three tough questions that we ask every single person that comes to Coogee Voice where is the best beach in the eastern suburbs where can you get the best coffee and who sells the best burgers Mm, okay the best beach, my favourite beach, uh, I've always loved Bronte Beach and one of the reasons I've loved Bronte Beach is I'm not from Sydney, as I said, I grew up in Coffs Harbour, but my grandmother lived in Sydney and she used to love going to Bronte Beach and I remember going to Bronte with her in the late 70s, early 80s because she wanted to swim in the rock pool there. So some of my earliest memories of, of Sydney are at Bronte and I think it's a beautiful little beach and it really is an underappreciated jewel in, in the Coogee electorate. So... Bronte for the beach. Probably our most used and favourite cafe would be Katosh up, up at the spot. Uh, we go there mainly because my wife loves the cakes at Katosh, <laughs> but I found that the coffee there is is fantastic as well. So uh, I vote for Katosh at the spot and the Soul Burger also at the spot. So on the other side of um, Belmore Road. A shout out for the vegans. Stuart, thank you for coming on Coogee Voice. Thanks, Marjorie. Thanks for thinking of me and inviting me. It was great. (laughs) Now, wasn't that fascinating talking to Professor Khan? If you'd like to learn more about Ramwick Council's Adopt-A-Drain, head to nbeachpollution.sydney. Thanks for listening to Coogee Voice. (laughs) 